Hi, M4Edge listeners. This is Michael. A quick note before we jump in. This episode is part two of our conversation with Mallory Dwinnell Palish. If you haven't yet listened to part one, I recommend you go back and do that first and then come back here. Or you can listen to the whole thing at once on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash at sign M for edge 212. That's youtube.com forward slash at M for edge 212. We'd love to know what you think of our new format and what you think of this two part format. So drop us a line at info at m4edge.com. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Enjoy part two of this conversation and thanks for being curious. So Mallory, this being M4 Edge, one of the beliefs that really caught our eye uh, were around technology and innovation. And so I'll read this one again for our audience. The technology belief is technology must make education more student-centered, affordable, accessible, convenient, and effective. So what makes technology student-centered? What are some examples of technologies that maybe are not student-centered? Yeah, I think um, the big paradox here is that a lot of times technology tries to be student-centered by competing with the teacher or the educator to have the student's attention. And with the idea of that is somehow student-centered, but implicitly, I would argue that's not. When we say student-centered, what we really mean is education is a human interpersonal experience. And if you take a look at the 10,000 things that need to happen for a student to learn, there's no way that one teacher can do all 10,000 of those things. So for us, the question is, how can technology serve almost as an exoskeleton to the teacher and and take off some of the duties and obligations, give them that sort of superpower and and automate the things away that a human doesn't need to do so that it frees up the humans in our system, our students and our teachers to really have that, that focused, personalized experience. I want my teacher focused on the student's needs and not on the report that they have to send out at the end of the week to all of the data collection agencies. And so that's how we think about technology. As just one example, even beyond craft, we have student service advisors who provide something that we call intrusive student services, which is that our student service counselors do not wait until a student has dropped out to reach out to the student and find out. They're constantly watching for early signs. Have you missed some homework assignments? Have you not been present in class? Has there been a change in your participation level? For someone to scroll all of that data and to do that analysis manually means that they're spending 30 hours a week just looking at spreadsheet and then only have 10 hours left to actually reach out to the students. When we put a technology service, we use a great service called Ribbon, which I'd recommend to anyone. And when our, when our advisors use that, now suddenly they need about half as much time, a fraction of the time to pull those reports. And it frees up more of their time to actually meet with the students, have meaningful conversations and do the follow-up. So when we talk about technology driving student-centered learning, it doesn't necessarily mean that the student is experiencing the technology. It means the student is experiencing the adults because the adults have the bandwidth because of the technology. Mallory, I have to say, you have just achieved the impossible, which is you have mentioned automation without Michael freaking out and starting to scream. (laughs) 
It's because I had to put go on mute. You know, there's some fire engines in the background. So, you know. <laughs> Especially in this context, that, that is quite impressive. And Valerie, I promise we're going to turn to craft in a minute, but let, let's stay on reach a bit more. One of the things we really like about the way reach is built is that it's evident there is a ton of intentionality in the program design. The beliefs that Michael has been quoting are part of that, but you also have developed a specific reach method, which includes efficiency, flexibility, relevance, affordability, and professional capital. All of these elements in different ways lower the marginal cost of supply of teachers by lowering the structural and the financial barriers to getting accredited without lowering the standards, as you have emphasized. Tell us a bit about the last one, professional capital, which to me is one of the most directly addressing the supply and demand disconnect. Absolutely. So we have five founding pillars of what an apprenticeship degree is. And the fifth one, which also happens to be one of my top two favorites, is professional capital. And I guess I'd back up and say this. There is immense need for labor market coordination when we talk about teachers. So right now in the United States, There are somewhere between 9 and 11 million people who hold active teaching credentials, even though, like you mentioned at the beginning of this, there's only about 3.1 million FTE positions in the United States. So how can it be that we have nearly three to four people holding a teaching credential for every single teaching position in the United States, and at the same time, we have 10% vacancy rates spread across all 50 states? How is that possible? And the answer is because we've been having supply operate in a vacuum completely independent of demand. Teacher labor markets are hyper-localized, right? So first, think about the fact that a school in rural Idaho is done no good by there being a spare teacher that can't get hired somewhere out in Southeast Florida, right? That, That does not do them any good. Teachers need to be in the exact geography, in the exact grade level and subject area required for every single classroom in America for this market to clear. And then you layer on top of that, that the overwhelming majority of teachers teach within 50 miles of where they grew up and or went to school. And so we have both a demand that's hyper-localized and a supply that's hyper-localized. And unless we coordinate on that level, we'll end up in the result where we are today, right? That, that's how we got to this really impossible outcome that we can have three times as many people holding credentials as possible and still have every one in 10 positions unfilled. How do we fix that? For us, it comes back to professional capital. So the way our model works, we're a B2B institution. So an individual cannot just come sign up for us and say, I want to be a teacher. We partner with school districts and then school districts tell us two things. Thing one, these are my vacancies both now and what I project over the next five years. Thing two, these are the people already working in my building in a role as a classroom aide, as a tutor, as a paraprofessional who I know could be great teachers for these particular roles, but they need, they need the degree. And then we upskill those professionals. And what that means is that the student knows and the district knows that when this person graduates, there is an exact position waiting for them in mind. So we start with that labor coordination at the beginning so that there are no surprises at the end. This uh, stat that you mentioned of people teaching within 50 miles of their, of where they themselves went to school and grew up. The, I think that labor mobility is a big issue generally, right? It's not just within education. And I'm wondering if you think there's something particular about teaching that makes labor mobility more difficult or more constrained in some way. 
Yes, I do. So I think first, what is the nature of this labor market? Like how is it dictated? And then what does that mean in terms of who opts into that profession? So I'm going to come back to monopsonies here for a minute. Excellent. <laughs> Teacher labor markets, they're not just monopsonies, right? A monopsony is when you have a single buyer of labor. They are monopsonies that are government run, right? A government run monopsony where the pay scale is being set from a single buyer who happens to be a local government institution. I can't think of a less competitive market than that. And the net result is that our teacher wages are way off from what market rate would suggest, right? When we take a look at what usually accountants and nurses are the two comp professions when we talk about teaching in terms of level of degree, level of daily responsibilities, and the labor return for a teacher versus those other professions is way off. So we have ourselves in a situation where the pay rate is way less than what it should be. And so how have we compensated? Largely with non-pecuniary incentives. We'll give you summers off. We'll make sure you're off the same time as your kids. You'll be home every day by 4 p.m. Those are sort of the ways in which we've made the market clear when we weren't able to afford through just competitive wage rates, the people we needed. So now let's think about who's self-selecting into that profession, right? Who are the people that are opting into something that is supposed to be good for having children, having work-life balance, even if it doesn't pay that well? These are the second breadwinners in households, right? These are people who are, by and large, not categorically, but by and large, the people who become lifetime teachers are overwhelmingly women, they're overwhelmingly mothers, and they tend to be the second breadwinner in their household. So going back to your question, Michael... Is that person going to be the one who gets her whole family to uproot and move across the country because there's a job opening for $45,000, 2,000 miles away? Absolutely not. So we've, we have made a profession that only draws in localized talent, but then we have not built a labor market that coordinates around localized talent. I wonder if there's a natural experiment anywhere. Is there part of the United States where actually private schools outnumber public schools and are, you know, what, what are the teacher salaries there? Like, does that, does that exist anywhere? Well, the problem is private schools tend to pay less than public schools. And the reason for that, so, so maybe it's not the government component of this monopsony. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's just the monopsony. The thing about these private schools is they tend to pay less because they tend to have more flexibility. You don't necessarily have to work with students with the same special education needs. You have more flexibility in what you teach. And so we don't see, again, we see these sectors clearing on non-pecuniary incentives as opposed to financial incentives. But the problem with that is that non-pecuniary incentives don't typically lead to a labor market that's hyperfluid. Mallory, I'll mention this just in passing, but I thought you had promised us to show up with a cat. And I don't, I'm wondering what happened to the cat. <laughs> you you <laughs> might have heard her meowing outside. She's mad because she's been locked out. So she's she's out there <laughs> and furious. Mm -hmm. I think that, that, that is unfair and I sympathize <laughs> with her. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. yeah. One last point on, on the, the last uh, issues we were discussing, because uh, implicitly, if I'm not mistaken, in what you're telling us, there is also a not a judgment, but a statement of, or an assessment of the success or failure of the remote learning experiences we've had with the pandemic, right? Because I think of the issue of local supply and local demand you were mentioning in other areas of the economy that has been sold through global supply chains and essentially you outsource. We've 
carried out an experiment in this through remote learning during the pandemic, can that not be the solution to matching supply and demand? of students and teachers. So if you have a locality where there is great, there are more students than available teachers, can that not be bridged by having more remote learning? So in theory, yes. Although what the pandemic taught us is that the difference between theory and practice is wide. And the reason for that is backing into what's the purpose of education, right? So the pandemic came around and schools had to shut down and learning had to start happening online. So in theory, we should have seen the doors open wide on that. Two years later, here's what we've seen, is that there are, there are two problems, one of which is an artificial shock or artificial challenge, and the second one, which is just an underlying challenge of what an education is. The first one is credentialing requirements. So if I am in the state of California, I have to hire a teacher with a California teaching credential to teach in my school. So if someone is living in Louisiana, in theory, they can work for me, but only if they have a California teaching credential, which they probably don't. That's an artificial issue. That's one that if this second problem weren't the case, we could probably set about trying to solve. Um, And maybe we should regardless. But the second issue is that, again, what we saw during the pandemic is that student learning outcomes plummeted. Right, A few weeks ago, uh, we saw the NAEP results, National Assessment for Educational Progress, And student scores in math and reading fell to their lowest in 30 years during the course of that pandemic. Two years was enough to undo 30 years of good teaching progress. And the question is why, right? Some of it is that it's hard to teach online, especially if you've got younger grades. Part of it is that teachers play this role that is not just pedagogical. It is making sure as a school that the student is there every time that they're sitting in their classroom, that if there seems like there's mental health issues, that they're getting referred to the right place. And when that, the ability to do that was taken away because there's physical distance created, we saw the bottom line on student scores just really fall out. So yes, in theory, online learning can create opportunities for there to be a more liquid labor market. And we're seeing some groups of good innovation work around that. But in practice, what we're realizing is you can get rid of the job, right, of the role, but you can't get rid of the actual task that needs to be done. If we're going to have teachers teaching online, then we need to unbundle that teaching role from those other functions and have someone else on the school site doing it. And we haven't necessarily found that staffing model yet. So let's turn to Craft now, Craft Education Systems, which is your for-profit startup company. So you're collecting and aggregating data for schools to make hiring easy. What data are you collecting and why don't schools already have it? Yeah. So this comes back to, again, the fact that we have two completely different reporting systems for how we train our teachers. I can't become a teacher until I have my college degree and my teaching credential. And if I'm going to go through a traditional college degree, great, I can use existing systems and data layers that have already been out there. But if I'm going to go through an apprenticeship degree, which for all of the reasons we've discussed that, you know, that creates better practitioner experience, it creates more equity and access. If that's a pathway that we want to open up to more students, there isn't a good data layer for reporting on that subsegment that we hope will become a growing part of the workforce because of the fact that now my data needs to be in compliance with the Department of Labor's apprenticeship reporting requirements and the Department of Education's higher education accreditation reporting requirements. And so we have two data systems that one is imperial, one is metric, and the two don't talk to each other 
at all because they didn't have to, right? Until recently, apprenticeships were for positions like electrician and plumber. Super important, super technical, do not require a college degree. So there was never any need for that compliance. And now as we merge those worlds together, we're finding the rift between those data systems is vast. Michael, as I keep saying, government is the problem. Government <laughs> is always the problem. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is super interesting, Mallory. Let me ask you something, though. Always on this issue of uh, credentials and the data, what is there that the craft can do and that other similar web-based, well, not similar to craft, but other web-based job boards like Indeed or LinkedIn, which are also focused to some extent, though in a different way, on collecting and making public and available and sharing data on credentials and skills and abilities do. What is the crucial difference here? The crucial difference actually starts before we ever get to the job board, which is Indeed and LinkedIn and these others don't manage the data compliance for the training itself. I am an individual, I have gotten my degree and here I can post it. So because they don't do any of that, there is our first value proposition is actually the value proposition to the training institutions. We will manage that compliance for you so that you can focus on running a great apprenticeship teaching degree and not on manually converting all of that data. That's difference one. The second difference gets back to your question of, okay, so now we've collected and reported all of that data. Now, the big difference is that we have verified data that students can take with them in a learning and employment record that confirms that they actually did what they said they were doing, right? I think the big problem on Indeed or LinkedIn is if someone's just completely making it up, there's no real way to verify that. If we're already collecting this data with a level of certainty that it can be reported to the U.S. Department of Labor and Department of Government for Feder- or Department of Education for federal funds, it has been verified. It is real data. And now an individual student can take that with them and the employer can have some certainty as to the veracity of what they're sharing. That's a very good point. I've always had my doubts about Michael's LinkedIn profile. (laughs) I was going to make the exact same joke about you. I said, I was going to say, for example, Marco claims he's an economist, but clearly too smart for that. (laughs) So what kinds of school districts are using craft? Are these districts with a especially acute staffing problem? Or are they trying to stave off a staffing problem? Are these the ones in trouble or the ones that think they're going to face trouble? Is there a, a demographic uh, attribute or a district size? You know, what is there a pattern to who's, who are your customers? So we started out focused on hyper remote rural regions. That was where we started because these had, these were groups that if they could not grow their own labor supply, the likelihood of them attracting teachers in felt very low. What we've seen over time, however, is that this demand is universal. For schools, at the end of the day, education is not a technology business. Education is a labor business. You are no better as a school than the people you have in your building. So so even the wealthiest, highest performing districts are constantly worried about when it comes time to hire this next teacher, How do I make sure I have a teacher that is up to my standards, that is steeped in the culture and the practices of my organization? And craft is a data tool for anyone that wants to grow their own teacher labor supply, whether you're remote, rural, urban, wealthy, low income, anywhere in between. If you are trying to grow your own labor, you need this compliance reporting tool, which means you need something like craft. And we are seeing that that appetite and that demand 
because labor is is such a critical component of a school's success, it has a pretty universal appeal. Do you want to give us one specific success story? But it sounds like the, so I'm sold that it sounds like what you can offer to school districts, especially rural school districts, districts which are feeling this problem especially acutely, it sounds like it's a pretty unique offering. Give us a success story, like a school or a district that has avoided a major shortage because of the offering that you provide. Sure. So we work with um, a school district in rural Louisiana that is out in the bayous, right? Out past the, the mainland. And ever since they used to have a ferry that connected them to the mainland, but the ferry was destroyed during a natural disaster. And so now there is really, except for by a private boat that once a day comes and goes, there is no way for people from outside of that bayou to get in, into that place. So as you might imagine, it is almost impossible for them to recruit outside teachers. They had over 90% of their classrooms filled with uncredentialed adults. They had an adult in the building because you can't just have a bunch of 16-year-olds running around unchecked. That's terrifying. If anyone's read Lord of the Flies, we know exactly what that looks like. But they also, only, only about one in 10 of their teachers had a teaching credential that was appropriate for the classroom and the grade level they were supposed to be in. And so that was this huge challenge for this district because they're committed to quality. It's not just that they wanted the paper. They wanted the students to have the quality and the experience and the training that that piece of paper was supposed to confer. And so they have been able to send all of those adults who are already working in that building and already have a good foundation and are from their community through this program. And so now they're in a world where they're about a year or two away, but they're only a few years away from being in a world where 100% instead of 10% of their teachers hold the degree and credential necessary for them to, to teach their students. Hmm, that's great. And I think it's just an example, I should just say, of like, we think the ecosystem is wide. There are so many other tools beyond apprenticeship degrees that can be used. But when you get out into these corner point solutions, something short, like something that is less mobile, something that is less place-based, they hadn't been able to touch their teacher shortage in years. And it, that is what it takes. It takes something with that level of flexibility in those extreme cases. It's a very impressive and powerful story. It's almost a, a segue to a point I want to raise because you know we've discussed this offline and it went completely against my prejudice. One of my longstanding prejudices is that one of the reasons why the school system runs into problems is the teachers' unions. And I would have expected that teachers' unions being focused on protecting the interests of their constituencies or current teachers would react defensively to an offering like yours, which brings more people into the profession through a different pathways. But you told us offline that that, that is not the case. Tell us why. Yeah, we've seen um, unions have actually been some of our greatest supporters for helping us get people into the program and trained. And I think the reason for that is teachers unions are filled with teachers who are working in schools every day and feel the burn of being in a building where they're not appropriately staffed. It is not good for me as an English teacher to know that if I'm teaching eighth grade English, that I'm going to get students who didn't have an English teacher in sixth or seventh grade. I don't want that for my students. I don't want that for my classroom. And so they want solutions. By and large, what we've seen is unions are opposed to solutions that they perceive a shortcutting quality, right? I'm going to have you go through a five-week boot camp. I'm going to waive teaching credentials. I'm going to waive other requirements. 
And you can argue whether they should feel that way or not. But at the end of the day, that's the objection we're seeing is not more teachers. It's are we lowering the barriers that I had to clear to become a teacher? And do I think that is going to have a negative impact on the quality of my colleagues? This pathway, because we are saying, look, the finish line is they're going to have the exact same college degree. They're going to have the exact same teaching credential. We're, we're not removing barriers we're, or we're not removing those safeguards. What we're doing is actually taking existing union members of your sister union, of the classified staff, right? People who are working as paraprofessionals, as classroom aides, they're in the classified union. They're now going to get, as a function of their union membership, a free college degree. And when they graduate, you are going to have someone who is already a union member in one union joining your union who has met all of the same criteria you had to meet and is going to work alongside you. And I think that is something that gives teachers this sense of this is a program that is aligned with my interests on I want high quality people. And I define high quality as they're working in my building. I know them. I trust them. And they're going to get the same training that I had to be equipped for this job. I hate things that make me change my mind. Michael, you need a break. Take it, take it over. I was going to say, if you have other suggestions for how to get Marco to change his mind on some of his preconceived <laughs> notions, I'm, you know, we'll have you back for some other topics. <laughs> Let's continue broadening this part of the conversation a bit. When we talked earlier about the reach belief on student-centered education, you told us a little bit about what that meant. So I, I think I know how you're going to answer this because you talked about your belief in technology as helping the teachers do their job rather than, I think if I can put words into your mouth, rather than helping the kids learn specifically, it's helping the teachers do their job so they can teach the kids. But you know, there's so much ed tech out there. Um, some is better than others. I forget the stat that I heard, but the number of different um, technologies and apps that school districts have is just staggering. I don't mean that are that they have available to them, but they actually buy. It's just many, many, many dozens, just sort of mind-boggling number. Um, so can you envision some ed tech that re drastically reduces the need for teachers? Like you got these 300,000 teacher equivalents that were missing. Um, can we supply some of that with tech? Or can we maybe make the average student-teacher ratio not 15, but 25 without you know a loss of learning outcome or a loss of education quality? Is there, is there a way to do this? There is a way. Yeah. And and so, again, let's go back to the history of how we got here. Because it used to be that we had a monopsony on female labor and, and other like people of color, etc. If I was a woman, there was only one place for me to go. This is relevant, I swear. That meant that we could underpay teachers and get the best quality that we needed. And we've already talked about what that did for wages. There's a second order effect that also happened when women's rights and, and the civil rights movement broke out in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, which is that now, women weren't choosing between being a stay-at-home mom or being a teacher. They had other options, right? They could go elsewhere. And so there was a reason why around that time, women started leaving home and entering the workforce. And we saw not just like correlation, but direct causality of that led to us saying, okay, well, someone needs to do the job of the caretaker at home, right? Like someone needs to do that job. And so the easiest thing to do is to just take what was still the cheapest unit of labor, which was teachers, and just say, we're just going to make smaller teacher class sizes, right? One to 15 is going to be what we do. We're going to lower teacher ratios because teachers can now take on more of those pastoral duties at home. So that substitution effect is how we got to this place of having class sizes that are so much smaller than they'd ever been in history. At the end of the day, if we want to relax that, 
And we want to get back to arguing efficiency around we need a teacher being able to do more with more students because we get paid on a per student basis. That's the way you create efficiency. If that's our thesis, then what we need to do is go and, and unbundle those roles that were only recently bundled together. And so I think programs that there is the direct ed tech everybody thinks about of like personalized tutoring that uses an algorithm to give students high dosage tutoring, et cetera. Sure. Right. I have no objections to that. I would say those tools have existed for a while now, and we've yet to see a real ROI in terms of student outcomes at a systems level. And I would say it's because I don't think that's the rate limiting factor. I think technology that starts freeing up teachers from some of those other duties, automating phone calls homes to parent when a student is late for school, managing IEP reporting for special education. I think things that free up the teacher's labor on everything but the instruction is paradoxically the right ed tech for allowing us to do more with instruction. Because I think there are already good ed tech tools that a teacher could use to reach students more effectively and more efficiently, but not if it's still only 10% of their bandwidth because they're still busy making phone calls and filing reports and do everything else. So I'd say if we were to fill out the, there's, there needs to be good ed tech as we traditionally think about it, that exists. Now our rate limiting factor are things that take up teachers' time and prevent them from effectively deploying that tech. And that's where we need to focus our attention. Mallory, we are running out of time, unfortunately, because I, we'd love to keep this, this conversation going for a lot longer and hopefully we'll have you back. But uh, since I've been reinventing myself during this podcast, let me take the, the question that normally Michael takes towards the end, which is uh, look ahead 15 years. You've mentioned the role of technology and what technology can do. We know that technology will change both how teachers can be trained, how teachers can do their jobs, and the jobs that will be available to students outside. But look ahead 15 years and tell us what do you think is very different 15 years from now? Are teachers paid better? Are they doing their jobs in a different way? Are they being trained in a different way? What does the whole ecosystem look like, say, about 15 years from now? So I think, and again, this is not because I'm a Luddite. It is not because I don't believe in technology, but I do think at its core, education is a human experience. And so my hope is that 15 years from now, We've invested in ed tech as a way of making teachers feel more empowered, more valued, and like they are resourced in the ways they need to do their job well. What that would look like is in 15 years, we have used technology in terms of how we train teachers so that you have high quality educators who are able to get a degree without taking on student loan debt, who then enter the classroom well-prepared, and who are then compensated at market rate, and that we have used technology to create the efficiencies for that to be true. Like that is at the center of how students and, and adults are working together to get those outcomes. And technology has been equipping that by creating more efficiencies that drive down costs in other sectors so that we can pay teachers more, charge us for their training, et cetera. That is my hope. And I think technology has huge potential there. For that to become the reality, I think we need to broaden our understanding of what is ed tech and what is the role that it has to play? Like we think ed tech is curriculum. And I think we have oversaturated the curriculum market. Every day I hear about a new curriculum company and that's great, but it's, there's no marginal return on that. I think we need to broaden our understanding of ed tech to things like, like we spent last year somewhere around $7 billion on headhunting and teacher shortage fees. What if we had ended teacher shortages through these tools and technological efficiency around teacher training and placement 
and had $7 billion new dollars flowing into our schools that didn't have to be spent on something like recruitment, right? So I think if we can get better at expanding our frame on what education technology is and what it does, and we can then use that to drive resources back into classrooms. Do you think in this future 15 years from now, university-based teaching degrees are still mostly around? Are they still the norm? I think they will be around. I think there will be a question of whether or not they are the norm, right? Some people, like, I think some people could rightly make the argument of some students want four years on campus, right? They want to go to sororities and frat parties. They want to be on campus. And, and that's, that's great. That's fine. The question is, is that the only way to find your way into the workforce? And so my, my theory and my hope is that they still exist, but rather than being how 100% of our teachers are trained, there are 50% of how our teachers are trained. Wonderful. Okay. Uh, anything else you want to you want to share with us before we let you go? This has been a, a long one, but it's been great. Any any other uh, comments you want to you want to add? No, not officially. I think this is great. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing okay. on the record. <laughs> so Mallory Dwinnell Palish of Reach University and Craft Education Systems, thanks so much for joining us at M4Edge. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this conversation, both parts. If you did, please let us know by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. It really does help. We're always looking for other curious listeners like you who might also enjoy what we do here. And leaving a review is one great way for people to find us. The other great way is good old word of mouth. So please also consider sharing the episode or the show with a friend. And of course, thanks for being curious.